Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who forgives. And uh, that happens in a radical way and continues to happen in radical ways. And I pray, Lord, this morning that as we hear from your word once again, that your spirit would guide and lead us to better understand what that looks like for us in the midst of a world that wrestles with this very concept. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in the summer of 1960, uh, preached these words to a group of people. If you're not aware, during this time, he was speaking to a group of people that were certainly divided in a time of division, of racism, of injustice, of a time of retaliation and revenge. And he said these words, forgiveness is a constant attitude, not an occasional act. Forgiveness is a constant attitude, not an occasional act. And if we take on this attitude, it brings us into a place that our soul desires to experience because forgiveness does deepen relationships. When Gretchen and I first uh, got married, we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go skiing in France. This is a picture of the two of us here. And uh, you can see that maybe you say, ah, in this moment, we are clearly looking into the sun, all right, and enjoying this beautiful slopes and everything like that. But this picture reminds me or says something so much deeper than just a skiing moment. See, the reason that we were in France to go skiing was because my parents lived in Brussels, Belgium during that time. And they decided for Christmas one year that they would gift us with a trip as a family to go skiing in the French Alps. I've never skied in Colorado, (laughs) but I've skied in France. And so the day finally came that we wound up in Morzine, France, And our family, my wife and I, we had just been married for about six months. My brother and my mom and dad were all in France to go skiing. And it dawned on me that I had never really asked my wife if she had ever skied before. And so we decided to take the three of us, me, my wife, and my mom, to go to ski school. And my dad and brother, who are expert skiers, they went and did their own thing, right? And so we get placed in ski school, first day. And they are just like giving us these simple little things to do. And my wife is kind of going and she is just struggling. And they start dividing us out like one, two, three, A, B, C. And next thing I know, my wife is like over here with this group of people that are still struggling to get their skis on. And I'm over here, right? And and we're just noticing all of this is happening as ski school goes on. And I really don't see my wife at all much during that time. Well, ski school was done at noon that day. And we decided that everybody was going to come back together to go 
uh, to lunch and then decide from there what we were going to do that afternoon. My dad and brother come back and they're like, you guys got to get out there. It is incredible. It is amazing. The, the mountains and all kinds of things. This is going to be insane. And my mom and I are kind of looking at each other like, maybe we should like go back into the chalet or something like that. And, and my wife, who is a trooper, says, all right, let's go. So we agree that my brother, who's an expert skier, he had taught many, uh, like he was a ski instructor for a period of time. He said, why don't you stay with my brother and let's, let's go out and we'll kind of go down some easy paths. And it was a nightmare. It was terrible. My wife is out there. She's going to one side and she falls down. And she goes to the next side and she falls down. And it just keeps happening. And I'm just sitting there on the slope like this. I'm so mad. My brother comes down to me and he says these words. She's not listening to anything I'm saying. (laughs) Gretchen finally gets down to me. And I'm mad. I'm upset. And I say to my wife, and I quote, my parents paid a lot of money for this trip you better suck it up and start doing better. Is that right, babe? You said you gotta suck it up and stop being a baby. All right, even better. You gotta suck it up and stop being a baby. That's what I said. For the podcast, all right? Let's make sure we get this straight. I made it through that day, right? I I didn't get a pole like stabbed through my head or something like that. She didn't hit me in this moment here and I have a black eye that I'm covering up or anything like that. But when I look at this picture, what I'm reminded of is simply this, that forgiveness deepens a relationship. I was so wrong to say something like that in that moment. And when I see that picture, what it reminds me of is this, is that forgiveness will deepen a relationship better than any book or marriage conference that I ever went to, that I realized in that moment that forgiveness will deepen a relationship. Because as Dr. King said in the summer of 1960, forgiveness is a constant attitude not an occasional act. And if we take on this attitude, it brings us into a place that our soul desires to experience because forgiveness also paves the way for a future even when there's a past. Uh, I don't know about you, but I know, or I would assume this of most families, that that most families have like skeletons in their closets. You know what I'm saying? Like when the family gets together for the family reunion, there's like always some kind of drama, whether that is what fuels a lot of the conversation or it is what nobody wants to talk about. But family comes with drama and everybody has some skeletons. In the McGinley family, uh, my family, my dad's side of the family, we, uh, we don't get together all that often because we live in all different parts of the United States. Uh, we have family in Seattle, Washington, uh, Kentucky, I'm in Chicago, Arkansas, Florida, North Carolina, all over the place. But when the McGinley family gets together on my dad's side, we have a big time. We celebrate, 
we, we highlight big moments of our family and all kinds of stuff. And, and one of the staples of when we get together is that we all uh, celebrate somebody's like milestone birthday or an achievement by writing a song off of a popular song. So taking the tune of the popular song and then like making it our own. And it's terrible because <laughs> we don't have a musical bone in our body. But about 10 years ago, when the family was getting together, the once every three to five years moment, before the family got together, my cousin reached out to the family and said, hey guys, I need you to know I'm bringing somebody to the family this year. And we were initially thinking, all right, maybe he's got a girlfriend or something like that. But instead, what he began to tell us was that when he was in his 20s, he had gotten a girl pregnant. And he didn't tell anybody about it. In fact, he didn't know for many years and denied it for a while. And 10 years later, he decided to tell the family that this had happened. He thought it was time to let them in on the skeleton that was in his closet. And so, 10 years ago, all of a sudden, my cousin showed up with a son who happened to be 13 years old at the time. And it was in that very moment that it could have been easier for my family to ignore the issue and pretend that it didn't happen. It could have been easier to condemn my cousin for his dumb actions and say, hey, this isn't how the McGinley's roll. This isn't how we do things. You're not really a part of the family anymore. Or it could have been easier to exclude all offending parties and just say, hey, you're not representing us well. You shouldn't be here. But instead, my family, as exampled by my grandmother and my dad and his siblings, said, hey, you're a part of the family. As long as you can sing off key, you're definitely a part of the family then. You're definitely a McGinley. See, it was in that moment that when my cousin showed up with his son, that it was without hesitation that he was a part of the family. And when I look back at that moment, what it was teaching me was something about forgiveness again. Because forgiveness not only deepens a relationship, it paves the way for a future when there is a past. Because as Dr. King said in the summer of 1960, Forgiveness is a constant attitude and not an occasional act. And if we take on this attitude, it brings us into a place that our soul desires to experience. Because forgiveness is a witness to a world that is filled with revenge. On May 13th, 1981, there was an infamous moment that happened in Vatican City. Pope John Paul II was traveling into his home, the Vatican, into the place where he stays. And as he was going on his way there, there was a man that was in the crowd. His name was Ali Ajay. And Ali uh, 
had just escaped from a Turkish prison. He came on a mission to come and kill the Pope. Maybe you remember this photo. Uh, That white circle there is literally the hand of somebody holding a nine millimeter gun pointed at the Pope. He took uh, a number of shots firing at the Pope and the Pope was shot. Uh, Injured his index finger and also his lower intestine. And if you remember from this moment, after Ali had taken that shot, many people tackled him. He wasn't going to be able to go anywhere. He was arrested immediately and brought to prison. And the Pope, after many months and a couple of surgeries, came to a full recovery. But then what was even more shocking was about two years later, this photo surfaced. Maybe you remember this moment where the Pope, the man who was shot, showed up at the prison of Ali Aji, the man who had tried to kill him. And in a private conversation that had happened between the two, it later came out that the Pope had come to offer forgiveness to this man who had tried to kill him. He went even further in uh, the year 2000, so about 17 years later, the Pope, after keeping uh, up with Ali and his family and checking in on him and his sentence and all sorts of things, he had been sentenced to a life sentence, the Pope had decided that, that Ali, or rather he had requested that Ali would be pardoned from his life sentence saying that he had forgiven this man. And it was granted that he was pardoned. In the year 2000, Ali was pardoned from that life sentence and was sent to Turkey to the place where he had escaped and he had to serve his other sentence that he had escaped from. And in 2014, Ali, after serving all of his sentences and doing all of the things that was required of those sentences showed up at the Pope's tomb, Pope John Paul II, in 2014, bringing roses to the Pope and talked about this moment that happened in the jail cell where he, in that moment, talked about his conversion to Christianity because of the forgiveness that had been offered in such a radical way. See, forgiveness is a witness to a revenge-filled world. And when I hear this story of the Pope, it seems so backwards. How could a man who had been shot then go and offer forgiveness to this kind of person? Was this just a publicity stunt that was done by the Pope? Said, hey, bring all the cameras and let's have the moment, and this could go even further and greater. No, What the Pope understood is that forgiveness is about breaking a chain. He also understands that justice has to be served. He didn't just let Ali never serve a day in prison. No, there is justice that needs to be had, but forgiveness does not seek to defeat people. It seeks to be a witness in a revenge-filled world. Because as Dr. King said, forgiveness 
is a constant attitude. It's not an occasional act. And if we take on this attitude, it brings us into a place that our soul desires to experience. Because forgiveness also is a result of the forgiveness that was given to us. During the teachings of Jesus, the time that he was walking with his disciples, one of his disciples came forward, one of his closest ones, Peter. And Peter comes to Jesus and he says, how many times do I have to forgive my brother, my sister? Seven times? And it's a great question because it's one that we often ask ourselves. How many times do I have to forgive this person that is constantly offending me? The, the number seven isn't some random number that Peter like chose. No, he's referencing something according to the Old Testament, talking about that seven is this complete number. And then after that point, well, you know, forgiveness is maybe off the table. And Jesus's response is beautiful. He says, I don't tell you seven times, but I tell you 77 times. Now, Jesus is not saying that once you reach 78, well, no, forgiveness is off the table. That's not the point of what he's talking about. He said, I'm going to teach you something even more beautiful. Because Jesus shares his own story of what forgiveness actually looks like. He says this. He says there was a master. He was a king. And he's settling his debts. And and there's a man, a servant, who owes him a significant amount. And so he calls him forward to settle that debt. The debt that is owed is 10,000 talents. Now, to put that into our equation and understanding, one talent is about 130 pounds of gold. Now, if you're like me, you don't know what gold is going for nowadays, right? Well, that one talent would be worth about $2 million. This servant doesn't owe one talent. He owes 10,000 talents. The equivalent would have been in the story that Jesus is sharing is about $20 billion that this servant owed the master. He can't pay it is the point. And so he comes to the master and, and he asks for mercy. And the master says, well, actually, the master says this. He says, I'm going to have compassion upon you. Notices that this, this person, this servant, is begging for mercy. And the master has pity, or rather, a better word would be compassion for that one who owes him so much. He forgives him his debt and he sends him off. Well, Jesus continues the story. He says that that guy who was forgiven much then goes out and he has somebody who owes him money. And the person who owes him money owes him about 100 denarii, which 
is nowhere near the amount that he owed. In fact, it's about four months' wages, a significant amount, but nothing compared to the 20 billion or the 10,000 talents that he owed the master. And that forgiven servant then holds it against that other servant, takes him to court, and demands that he is thrown in prison because he does not pay the debt that he is owed. Word gets to the master, the king, and the master calls forward the one that he had forgiven that massive amount and says, where is the disconnect here? You don't get it. You've been forgiven much, and you're called to show that to others as well. And the king, as a result of the lack of forgiveness that was extended by the forgiven servant to his brother, then puts that brother in prison. It's a hard story to hear. But but needs to be understood in the midst of our divided world. I love how Leo Tolstoy says this. By forgiving a person, one swallows evil up into oneself and thereby prevents it from going any further. What Jesus is teaching in this story here is one that certainly is a prescription of how we're called to act towards each other. But what he's first teaching us about is the forgiveness that God has provided for us. Never forget the first part of what this story is. There's a debt that you and I cannot pay that is so massive. It's not about money. It's something that we can't earn back and God has provided and he has given his life for us by his death and resurrection that it would make things right between us and our heavenly father see our forgiveness is a result of the forgiveness that is first given to us And as Dr. King once famously said, forgiveness is a constant attitude, not an occasional act. But I get it. Like this is really easy to talk about in regards to a sermon. I get it. That if you had the microphone and were standing right here, I know that there could be somebody in this room here today who could stand up and share a story of where you have been abused, a story of where you have been taken advantage of, a story where you have been assaulted, a story of racism that you've experienced, a story of brokenness, an emotional scar that exists that has you limping into church today. If you think that I'm here to tell you that forgiveness is an easy thing, you've missed the whole point. 
I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy for us to receive or show. But it's essential for us as we heal in the process. See, what I know is that when people say forgiveness, really what they want is reconciliation. We want things to be made right. We want there to be justice. We want there to be a righting of the wrong that has happened. But for true reconciliation to happen, I believe there are two things that have to happen for reconciliation to come. Certainly, there must be justice. Because justice deals with the problem that is at hand. But there also must be forgiveness. Because forgiveness deals with the person that is the offending and the offended party. I love uh, this guy, Miroslav Volv. He says this in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He has this beautiful long quote. He says, forgiveness, uh, I want to read you part of it, and then the other part's on the screen. Forgiveness is not a substitute for justice. Forgiveness without justice is cheap reconciliation. Genuine and lasting reconciliation is possible only on the basis of both forgiveness and a repairing of wrongs. I love this. Reconciliation has two locks to open. There are two locks that have to be open in reconciliation. One might say, if forgiveness is one key, then justice is the other. Forgiveness is the one half of reconciling work that a victim exercises, while justice is the other half of reconciling work that is reserved to the perpetrator. Only after having achieved both, both goals, can true reconciliation occur. This week, in our Red Letter Challenge, we are talking about forgiveness. We're going in our small groups and discussing this very complicated and heavy word known as forgiveness. And I know that as we meet and as we talk and as we hear the words and teachings of Jesus, we think about the, the heavy weight that this comes with, and it is heavy. But it's more than just saying sorry. But it also involves that as well. I pray that we would come to understand that forgiveness is a messy thing. But it is absolutely necessary for reconciliation. Because if we take on this attitude... It brings us into a place that our soul desires to experience. Because forgiveness, it deepens relationships. Forgiveness paves the way for a future, even when there's a past. Forgiveness is a witness to a revenge-filled world. And our forgiveness of others is a result of the forgiveness that was first given to us. And so... In the summer of 1960, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached to a group of people, a group of people that were divided, a time in our history where racism was loud and proud, a time where injustice 
was happening retaliation and revenge. He said these words, and they're words for us to hold on to today, that forgiveness is a constant attitude, not an occasional act. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who works with an attitude of love and compassion. And it bothers you, Lord, when we are unwilling to show that compassion that we've received to others. That is so incredibly messy in our world. Especially as we are seem to be so connected to so many issues and problems that are really messy. I pray, God, that we would be so bold as believers to hold on to that wonderful truth that forgiveness is a part of who we are because of what you've done for us. May that be our attitude. May it not just be the popular thing to do or the unpopular thing, it would be the attitude that we take on as we live in this world. But ultimately, may it point to you and what you have done first. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.